If we haven't yet met, if you don't know me, my name is James Smith. I'm a minister here. If you do know me, you know that I'm English, and I also love cars. I'm a complete uh, petrol head. Now, I have uh, a friend in the UK who's also uh, English. He's a minister, or vicar, as they call them over there, and he has no interest in cars whatsoever. He rides a bicycle. But several years ago, his bishop chose him for a particular social experiment. He was taken from his sleepy parish in Norton St. Philip, rural Somerset, and dropped into the business of Star Motors in the Essex town of Brentwood. He was given a mentor and a challenge that within one month he has to pass himself off as a used car salesman. Now, apologies to any used car salesman uh, in uh, the church today, uh, but it was clear that this profession was chosen deliberately because it was considered that um, if a vicar is at one end of the integrity spectrum, then a used car salesman is at the other. Now, my friend Nigel is your stereotypical Church of England rural vicar. He's well-bred, he's well-mannered, He's well-spoken, he paints, he has a Jack Russell, and he talks with a private school accent. Whereas Dominic, his mentor, is pretty much a stereotypical Essex car salesman. He's loud, he's brash, he's cheeky, he's as wide as a barn door, and he talks like he never went to school. However, over four weeks, these unlikely companions worked hard at transforming the vicar into the salesman, swapping Nigel's clerical dress with a sharp suit, filling his head full of car specs and finance deals, and turning his natural niceness into artificial slickness. And then a month later, the test came. Three experts spent a day at the business observing Nigel and two genuine car salesman at work on the forecourt. Nigel excelled himself. He even managed to sell a Toyota Corolla. Um, And much to the surprise of his parishioners and to the consternation of his wife, you know, is this the man I married? He passed the test. They thought that he was the genuine article, a real-life car salesman, where, of course, really... He'd been faking it. And it was a reality TV show. You've probably guessed, and it was called just that, Faking It. This morning, we are also going to look at what is fake and what is genuine. But the subject matter is not going to be our profession so much as, I suppose you could call it our vocation. Because the question I'm asking is this, is our righteousness genuine or fake? Or to put it more bluntly, if you are a follower of Jesus, are you genuine or are you faking it? Are we genuine disciples or is our righteousness just a veneer? Like Nigel's car knowledge and his sales technique, just enough to convince and even impress onlookers, but actually underneath the surface, nothing. We are part way through a series on the Sermon on the Mount called Blessed. In it, Jesus is describing the vision of his kingdom, of what life could be and and should be like. 
He's painted a compelling vision, a kingdom where ethics goes beyond mere compliance to negative laws, a kingdom where morality is the willing and even joyful obedience to positive commands, commands of grace and generosity and love, even love of enemies. A kingdom where we are called to imitate God's perfectionism in the sense of growing in the likeness of Christ. It truly is a blessed place. And I know I want to live in a world like that. And I want to do those things, but I know my heart. And I know that even if I were a little like that, then I would desecrate that beautiful vision of a righteous life. How? By thinking just how much others would praise me and honour me and hold me in high esteem and then snap, I would spring the trap of hypocrisy. Now Jesus knows the egotism in our hearts and so he addresses this issue in our reading today. Chapter 6, I hope you've got it in front of you. Verse 1 He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And this is the principle that he then applies in the following verses. And in so doing, he reveals what is fake righteousness and what is genuine righteousness. We all start with the fake stuff, and I've defined it like this. Fake righteousness is ritual performed publicly by hypocrites to please men. Let's unpack this. Jesus uses three Jewish religious acts to make his point, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. And we know from earlier in the sermon that he's referring to the Pharisees, a group of particularly devout Jews. Now, he's not criticizing for doing those things. Indeed, he expects all his followers to do them. The problem is their motive. They're motivated by the need to please men. So they give to the needy, verse 2, to be honoured by others. They pray, verse 5, to be seen by others. And to be approved, these acts must be seen, so they have to be performed publicly. Hence their giving is announced with trumpets, even literally. The trumpet call came out from the temple and the faithful ran to contribute financially to the need. Their praying is done in public, standing in the synagogues, even at street corners. Again, probably at the timing of the daily sacrifice, when they, wherever they were, they turned to the temple and said the fixed prayer. And when they fast, well, then they deliberately look downcast, verse 16. They disfigure their faces, probably a neglecting personal hygiene and heaping ashes on their heads. So there's no doubt to others what they're doing. And these acts of righteousness are just that. They're acts, performances. They don't really care for the poor when they give. They're not giving honour to God in their praying. They're not humble and contrite when they're fasting. Quite the opposite. Hence, Jesus calls them hypocrites. And the Greek word here originally meant actor. Someone who was playing a part, pretending to be someone they're not. There's a disconnect, isn't there, between what people see on the outside and what's really going on in the inside, between the external appearance and the internal reality. Hence, their practices 
have lost all meaning and value and have degenerated into ritual. And I use that term derogatively. They're worthless except for their showiness. Because the hypocrites don't go unrewarded, oh no. Truly I tell you, Jesus says in verse 2 and verse 5, they receive their reward in full. And there's a terrible chillness, I think, to that statement. They get the reward they want, the applause of their audience, but nothing more. No reward from God. They're okay in the eyes of man, but not okay with God. And that is a big problem because righteousness is being okay with God. It means being right with God. And they are not. And hence it is fake righteousness. And Jesus makes this point even more strongly and directly later in Matthew chapter 23 when he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Their righteousness is a veneer. They're frauds. They're faking it. Fake righteousness. Ritual performed publicly by hypocrites to please men. Well, I wonder if you were unpacking this definition, if you thought, ooh, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable now. But whom did Jesus have in his sights when he said these words? Well, originally, of course, it was the religious leaders of his day. And what about now? Well, firstly, it must be the religious leaders of today. Me, Stuart, people in positions of authority and leadership in the church and here at St. Andrews. Back to the advice that Jesus gives his disciples in chapter 23. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. And here I am preaching. Would Jesus say the same about me? Last week I invited some friends to church here today and it's nice to see them. And in the email I said, come and hear me preach. Brackets, shameless self-promotion, close brackets. And then I saw the passage that I was preaching on. How ironic is that? <gasps> when I became a, a minister, someone said, be careful, your congregation would want to put you on a pedestal and you would want to let them. Now, Jesus' command in verse 1 to be careful is not just to leaders, but to all who are in the kingdom and seek to follow him. Now, religious hypocrisy is not really as common today as it was in Jesus' day. Certainly, religious observance has a lot less kudos, if any, in the wider society. Now, today the danger comes within the church. You know, are we seeking to impress fellow Christians with our generous giving, nicely worded prayers? Theologically sound comments in Bible study groups. Fasting at all, let alone the two days a week prescribed by Jewish law, that would be extremely pious by today's standards. And of course, there's nothing wrong with those practices, but do they come from the heart with the right motive? Or are we faking it? So that is fake righteousness. 
What about the real thing? Well, here's my definition. Genuine righteousness is piety practiced subconsciously by children of God to please him. Righteousness, as I've said, means being right with God. So the aim is not to be honoured by men, but to have God's approval, to please him. Our audience is an audience of one. God sees everything we do, knows the inmost thoughts of our hearts. And that may seem scary, but actually, it's liberating. Because then we are free from the burden of performance. There's no point in pretending we're something we're not with God. God can see through the metaphorical mask of hypocrisy. It's so tempting to play a part, isn't it, even with God, but we can all be real with him. And it starts when we're alone in prayer. Verse 6, when Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. So well, wherever our relationship is with God, we can remove our mask and be real with him. But the issue here is not just to hide our righteousness from others, but even from ourselves. And that's the force of the peculiar command in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Well, secret from whom? Secret from ourselves. When we're motivated to please men, it's not just others we're seeking to please, but ourselves. We want others' approval because it feeds our own pride, makes us feel good about ourselves. It pleases us. And the only way to prevent that is for our righteousness to be practiced not just secretly, but subconsciously, as if we're not even aware of what we're doing. Well, how is this possible? Well, it's possible in the same way that I instinctively get up at the end of every mealtime to do the washing up. Why do I do that? Because my father does. I don't even think about it. It's just what I do. Because I've learnt it as his child. Now, doing the washing up is obviously not particularly pious, uh, but you get the idea. I'm behaving in the family likeness. And this means that genuine righteousness is only possible because we are in God's family. We are children of God. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. It means to be in God's family, to be his children. And this is partly why the Lord's Prayer is in this passage. It's the point that's made by the first two words, our Father. Now, from an early age, we've probably got used to praying the Lord's Prayer and calling God Father, but in Jesus' day, the form of the address would have been stunning. His listeners would have been calling God Sovereign Lord or King of the Universe, but never, ever Father. But that is the reality of the kingdom. Being a disciple of Christ means being a child of God. Trusting in Jesus means being born of God, becoming his son, becoming his daughter. That is why Paul could write to the Galatians what we heard earlier. Because you are his sons, his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, 
Aramaic for father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. That is the reality. And as we demonstrate the family likeness, our acts are therefore acts of piety. They're pious in the sense that they reflect our Heavenly Father's character, godliness, holiness, love. And they're also pious in that they are performed out of reverence and respect for him. Our acts of righteousness, therefore, are genuine. They come from our heart, the heart indwelt, as Paul said, with God's spirit of his son. And they're not just a beautiful false facade, but they're an outward expression of an inward truth. They're genuine also because they please God. And pleasing him is the reward that is promised. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you, Jesus says in verse 4. We will be rewarded in this life with the knowledge of his pleasure and he will reward us at the end of our lives in the future. Well done, good and faithful servant. So that is genuine righteousness. Piety practiced subconsciously by the children of God to please him. I'm going to finish with a query that you may have had if you've been following our series through and an example, I think, of genuine righteousness and then possibly a way forward. So briefly, first the query. If you were here a few weeks ago, you have heard earlier in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus telling his disciples to be the light of the world. Just as a town on a hill can't be hidden and a lamp isn't put under a bowl but on a stand, so he said in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, do these words seem to contradict what we've just heard? In chapter 5, we are told to, uh, to make our deeds visible. And in chapter 6, we're told to do them in secret, hide them even from ourselves. Well, it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, I've been thinking about this paradox this week and then the answer came to me. And it was a combination of the 20th century German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the 21st century Jamaican sprinter Usain Bolt. Sounds a bit, sounds a bit bizarre, but I'll explain everything. Firstly, Bonhoeffer, he said this, commenting on this passage, we must be unaware of our own righteousness. Then it will not seem extraordinary, but quite ordinary and natural. He means that our acts of righteousness will become second nature to us. And so quite ordinary to us, but extraordinary to others. Let Hussein Bolt demonstrate this in the athletic stadium. So, here he is running a 200-meter race last month in Shanghai. It's the opening meet of the Diamond League series. If you're in any doubt as to which one Bolt is... He's the one in the front. And as you can see, he completely destroys the opposition. Nine, ten metres ahead. But his time was only 19.76 seconds. That's two-tenths of a second slower than his previous race, and over half a second slower than his world record. Now, the commentator at this point, when he crosses the line, says, 
Most sprinters, even great runners, will never, ever get near that. And yet, Bolt makes it look so easy. To borrow, borrow Bonhoeffer's phrase, Usain Bolt has made the extraordinary quite ordinary and natural, at least for him. Something that was absolutely extraordinary and rightly worthy of praise is actually, for Bolt, no big deal. He's probably running these splits in training. Now, I can't push the analogy too far because Hussein Bolt, bless him, is an inveterate shelf. <laughs> but you get my point. <clears throat> Just as for Bolt sprinting, so for our living. For us, our acts of righteousness should be natural and subconscious and therefore ordinary, but for others, extraordinary. And then they will know that such acts come from our Father and glorify him. Now this week I heard of such an act. I'm going to share it with you anonymously so hopefully the person won't be embarrassed. Almost two weeks ago, one of our members was in Chatsworth Chase when an old man fell down an escalator and was badly injured. And she ran to his aid, performed a first aid, and then accompanied him to the medical centre uh, when he had further treatment. It transpired that he lived in a neighbouring suburb to her and looked after his invalid wife at home. And she gave him her contact details if he ever needed help. And this week, he was rushed into hospital again. So she dropped everything and went round to help care for his wife. And what struck me about this was it was both ordinary and extraordinary. It was ordinary in how I came to be told about it as an apology for not turning up to a meeting, as if such a thing was no big deal. And yet it was extraordinary because it was a big deal. It was kindness beyond what could be expected. I think it was genuine righteousness. Now, I would love to say to you, go and do likewise. But how can I? When such acts are meant to be spontaneous and unpremeditated. So there's no quick fix here. You have to add to your Christian to-do list this week. Growing into the family likeness is a long-term, lifetime, activity. But it starts and is fed when we as children of God go back to our Heavenly Father and practice piety in the secret intimacy of his presence, in acts of prayer and fasting and giving. And it is nurtured and encouraged when we as the family of God practice piety as a community and in the community of the church here in acts of care and love and sacrifice. Then such extraordinary acts will become natural and ordinary for us individually and for us collectively. Then real godliness, unaffected holiness, the beauty of genuine righteousness will shine. Because then we won't be faking it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be made your sons and daughters.
welcomed into your family by grace through your Son. Help us, we pray, by the power of his Spirit in our hearts to grow into the family likeness, to live in a way that pleases you and to practice genuine righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.